grab a Bible and let's go to Zechariah chapter 1. Some of you know that I married a Texas Aggie. Rachel graduated from Texas A&M and this school has some very, let's call them unique traditions. So Russell and Colby, you're going to have to bear with me for just a minute. Uh, one of these, this, this school's traditions is the Aggie War Hymn. It's a fight song of sorts that they sing slash yell regarding their rival competitors. And right at the end, the students sway and shout these words, Saw Varsity's horns off, Saw Varsity's horns off, Saw Varsity's horns off, short. Hey, you know. Something like that. Varsity refers to their rival. To cut off Varsity's horns means to defeat them. Aggies have fun singing this song. But of course, we know their fight song doesn't always mean victory. It's only the guy from Alabama laughing, right? (laughs) Mississippi, yeah. This is not the case with the songs resounding from the Church of Jesus Christ. We sing because with the Lord always means victory. In our passage today, the Lord gives Zechariah a vision of some horns that he will cut off. The Lord will cut off. Only once the horns are destroyed... They never raise their heads again. God destroys his enemies so that his kingdom alone stands and so that his people alone dwell with him in peace. That's where we're heading. And it's really a continuation of where we, uh, where we left uh, off last Sunday. If you recall, each, each vision is interlocked with each other such that these Eight visions tell a single story. The first vision only gave us part of the story. God promised to return to his people, giving them restoration, grace, and a future hope in a new Jerusalem. But it also left us hanging in some ways. One of those ways is that God said he was exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. But we weren't told yet what God was planning to do with the nations. Would he get them out of the way? Would he fight for his oppressed people? Would he really judge them? These questions get answered in the second vision. Let's read together starting in verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw... And behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking through prophets by your Holy Spirit that we might understand who you are, what kind of God you are, how you work in the world, and where you are taking us. Thank you for all that it reveals about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you please help us see him more clearly today in his glory, in his kingdom, in its power, and how we ought to respond until he brings it in full. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we noted last week, visions are one vehicle among others that God used to reveal himself. And visions often involve peculiar imagery uh, and overlapping uh, metaphors, many times quite difficult to understand. But what's also true of most visions in the scriptures is that God provides the interpretation. The interpretation is not always exhaustive in uh, detail or chronology, like how these things are going to play out in history, but the interpretation is always sufficient for us to know God and to trust God to save us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Within the genre of literature we're reading, which we also find elsewhere, like in the book of Daniel and Revelation, God interprets the vision that He gives to His servant through an angel. God gives the vision, then He sends an angel to interpret what is there, to help the prophet understand, and by doing so, He helps the coming generations, such as ourselves, understand as well. We get this much in our vision today. Zechariah sees four horns and four craftsmen, and then he asks the angel, what are these, referring to the horns, and what are these craftsmen coming to do? The angel then answers accordingly. Let's begin with the four horns. Three times the angel discloses the identity of these horns. Look first at verse 19. I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? What are these horns, in other words? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then he says it again in verse 21. These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. Then he gets even more specific at the end of verse 21. To cast down the horns of the nations. The horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. It's very clear what the, what the horns represent. The horns represent the Gentile nations that scattered God's covenant people into exile. You know, oftentimes in Scripture, uh, stretching back as far as Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, the, the horn of an ox often becomes a metaphor for, for military strength of kings and nations. 
So if one talked about the horn of Moab or the horn of the wicked or, or even the horn of the righteous, the horn stood for the strength of that nation, that people, that king. If your horn was raised up, you had the power. If your horn was uh, cut off or laid low, you lose in great shame. You see this playing out especially in, in places like Daniel 7 and 8 as different kingdoms are vying for the upper hand. Same metaphor here in Zechariah. We're, we're getting a picture of strong nations who oppose God and His people. They, they've come in and humiliated Israel. They, they've so defeated Israel that no one was able to raise his head, verse 21 says. It, it, it's a picture of them sitting in shame. And God said this would happen to them. If his people did not uphold their end of the covenant, God said this would happen to them. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33, if Israel disobeyed God's word and chose not to follow him, God promised this, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. The nation at large, Ezekiel says, took, took the idols of the nations into their hearts. And so the curse overtook them and the Gentile nations scattered God's covenant people into exile. They, uh, they, they tossed them up like a winnowing fork, tosses the grain into the wind to, to get rid of the chaff. That's what these four horn nations did to Israel. Now, over the centuries, Christians have attempted to name the four specific horn nations that Zechariah has in mind. Some begin with Assyria, since Assyria was the first to take out the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And then they move on a little further to Babylon, since since they were the next in line to, to finish off Judah and, and Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then on from there, they named the Persians, who are still ruling in Zechariah's day. And then lastly, usually by prophetic prediction, Greece. Uh, Zechariah 9.13 speaks of Greece or, or some other future power. Much older is the interpretation that these four kingdoms must be the same four kingdoms that the prophet Daniel understood in his visions, his visions of the, of the beasts. That is, the four kingdoms are Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. In this view, the four horns stand for those kingdoms ruling over Israel throughout the centuries until Christ brings his final rule at the second coming. Both views have much to commend in their attempts to name the four nations. But we must be careful not to draw dogmatic conclusions where Scripture itself is not explicit. We can say with certainty that Zechariah's vision complements Daniel's vision 
because Scripture does not contradict Scripture. Both Daniel and Zechariah lay out a history of wicked nations oppressing God's covenant people, and both reveal that God destroys them for His covenant people. But whether Daniel's four and these four are the same is difficult to prove. What Zechariah does make explicit is that the horns are oppressive nations who scattered God's covenant people into exile. And that's the point he wants us to get here. And in addition to that, the book of Zechariah itself seems to give the sense of what he means by the numeral four. Because he uses it in other places in his book. And later in in Zechariah chapter 2, he gets more specific. I have spread you, this is God speaking about Israel, I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven. The four winds of the heavens, it says. It's speaking of all four points on the compass. Not all the Jews made it to Babylon in the north. The Jews were scattered north, south, east, and west. In that sense, the numeral four in the four horns represents all the encircling nations who oppress God's covenant people. It doesn't matter what direction the nations come from. In other words, they have oppressed God's people, and the point of this vision is that the day of their oppression is drawing to a close. God intends to destroy them. That brings us now to the four craftsmen in verse 20. And a number of observations are before us. First off, see that there are also four of these craftsmen. The four horn nations have met their match in the four craftsmen. But we can hardly say it's an equal match because the craftsmen terrify the horns. They have the ability to cast down the horns. The problem of these oppressive nations is great, but it's not insurmountable. God has a plan with these craftsmen. They're, they're suited for the task, in other words. Also note the difference between the prophet's two questions in verse 19 and verse 21. The first question about the horns is, what are these? What are these? He's concerned with their identity. And the angel then identifies the horns with the nations, as we just saw. The second question, however, is different. It isn't about the craftsman's identity as much as it is about the craftsman's task. He asks, what are these coming to do? That question should shape our focus and our emphasis as well. The text isn't concerned with disclosing the identity of the four craftsmen. The text is concerned with telling us what the craftsmen do. And the end of verse 21 tells us that the craftsmen come for a single purpose, to terrify the horns, to cast down the horns of the nations. Before, in verses uh, 11, if you just glance back in Zechariah, verse 11 of chapter 1 and verse 15, we should be reminded that the nations were not terrified of anything. Verse 11, they were at rest. Verse 15, they were at ease. And as we saw last week, this wasn't a good thing. 
they should have been fearing the Lord of the, ho- the, the, the Lord of hosts, who just judged his people for breaking covenant with him. The nations should have feared the Lord of hosts, who just judged his people for breaking covenant with him. You see, the exile of God's covenant people wasn't just a way for God to judge his own people, Israel. It was also a way to get a message out to, the, to all the Gentile nations around saying, hey, look at this picture of what I'm doing with my people. I judge covenant breakers. That's, that's one, one point of the exile. God judges covenant breakers. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He must judge covenant breakers. And on this side of Adam's sin, everybody, not just Israel, everybody is a covenant breaker. Israel breaking covenant with God under the law of Moses helps everybody see that they have broken covenant with God under Adam. Doesn't Paul say this much in Romans 3? The law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth, the law speaks to those who are under the law, Jews, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The nations should have seen God's covenant people in exile learned, whoa, this God does not tolerate sin, and then repented of their own covenant breaking and turned to Israel's God for mercy. But that's not what they did. Instead, the nations grew even prouder. So after being used as God's instrument to carry Israel into exile, the nations, instead of repenting, they they grow proud and arrogant in what what they do. And so the Lord says it like this in Isaiah 47 as he speaks to the nation of Babylon itself. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I, the Lord, gave Israel into your hand. You, Babylon, showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. These things referring to the exile. They didn't get the purpose of the exile, Isaiah is saying. Isaiah 47, verses 6 and 11. Verses 6 through 11, I mean. They didn't get the purpose of the exile. They grew prouder, and he goes on. Now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasures who sit securely. Remember in Zechariah, the nations are sitting at rest. Here, they're sitting securely. Who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, 
in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness, you said. No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. The nations that scattered Judah didn't get the message of of the exile, that God judges covenant breakers because they never cried out for mercy themselves. They just grew all the more proud. So now God was setting himself against the nations. And these craftsmen, mentioned by Zechariah here, act as God's agents of judgment. These craftsmen are to terrify the nations. Same word appears elsewhere in Scripture when God shows up. Um, Appears at Mount Sinai when God gives Israel the law. His people tremble at the base of the mountain. Um, he, he He delivers his people from the exile. And the Scriptures say that the nation of Egypt and Tyre, they, they, they tremble. Uh, God begins establishing His lordship in Isaiah 41 over the entire world. And it says the ends of the earth tremble. Their knees are knocking at what the Lord is doing. Well, likewise, these craftsmen, they, they spread the fear of the Lord among, among the nations too. They, they terrify them. But we still have to ask... Why choose craftsmen, of all things, to terrify and destroy the nations? Why not warriors or hunters or dragons? Something with a bit more pizzazz than craftsmen. Well, do remember that these visions are interlocking visions. Each vision relates to the other, and oftentimes the the metaphors begin to overlap. Already, we were introduced to a pretty fascinating construction project that God was to begin very soon. The exile left the temple and Jerusalem and Zion in ruins, but God was about to rebuild it. Uh, Read with me again verse 16. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. House shall be built. Measuring line stretched out. Not just over the temple, but over the entire city. This is a major construction project. And as we'll see next week, the the project just keeps building outward in chapter 2. Well, as with all major construction projects, you need craftsmen. People with skills to, to build. In fact, we should note that this same word, used to talk about these craftsmen here, appears elsewhere in Scripture to speak of the agents God uses to build His dwelling place and His royal city. 
It appears in Exodus when the Lord fills a few people with His Spirit. You remember these guys, Basilel and Aholiab? The Lord fills with His Spirit to build and to decorate the tabernacle, His dwelling place there, the tabernacle. Then it appears in 2 Samuel 5, the, the king of, Not, uh, of Tyre, after David uh, claims victory over Zion, the city of the king, uh, the king of Tyre sends David a bunch of craftsmen to help build the city of Zion. And when they build the city of Zion, it says God exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. And then later we find it in uh, Chronicles when David leaves Solomon, a ton of carpenters, to, to build the temple in Jerusalem. So we see these agents used elsewhere in Scripture to build God's dwelling place and His city, the city of the king. But we also find that it was devastating to the city not to have such craftsmen. So in other places like 1 Samuel Without craftsmen, you, you couldn't build. You couldn't build walls to defend yourself or even make the weapons that you need to attack others. If you, want, if you wanted something, your enemies had to provide it. And that's no good. So it's pretty significant that whenever the Scriptures recount the exile, they include in their list of folks getting hauled off to Babylon the craftsmen carpenters and metal workers and such. At one point, 2 Kings 24 says, a thousand craftsmen, all of them strong and fit for war. So these aren't weak men. These, these guys can fight too. They were hauled off, it says. This isn't good for the temple and it's not good for Jerusalem. But the Lord wasn't going to leave them there. Even before they went into exile, the prophet Jeremiah after, after listing how the craftsmen were, were, were captured in, in Jeremiah 29, he, he makes a promise that, that God wouldn't forsake them utterly. One day a remnant would return to the land. And as we see here in Zechariah, he would, be, he would begin a new building project. I will set my eyes on them for good, the Lord says. And I will bring them back to this land. I will, I will build them up and not tear them down. This is Jeremiah 24. I said 29 a minute ago. Fast forward several decades. And we find the Lord fulfilling this promise given by the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord stirs up the, heart, the, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus was to be God's special servant. And through his rule, God would subdue the nations and then initiate his new building project for, for this one purpose, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no God besides the Lord. So kind of see the same pattern coming here, that, that when these craftsmen build Zion, the Lord vindicates his kingdom for all of his people. Here, Cyrus is going to come back, initiate this new building project, that people might know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no God besides the Lord. Cyrus would be a sign that God reigns sovereign for his covenant people. So Cyrus orders the Jews to return and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. The people return, and when they do, we find among the people, once again listed in Ezra chapter 3, craftsmen. 
once again building the second temple right about the time of Zechariah's prophecy. All that to say, the metaphor isn't out of place. Using craftsmen fits the bigger picture God is painting for his people in these visions. Whoever these agents are, God is going to build his royal temple city, and there's not a single nation that will stand in his way. That's the point of the vision. That's the picture he's painting. If these nations get in his way, he will destroy them. When God exalts his kingdom, all other kingdoms must come crashing down. This is very similar to the um, prophecies you get in in Isaiah's uh, visions where the mountain of the Lord would be lifted up above all the other mountains and all the other mountains of the nations would be hewn down to nothing. The craftsmen terrify the nations because their visible work on earth displays the invincible rule of the invisible God in heaven. God's work through them will send the nations scurrying with their horns missing. They will cast down the horns of the nations, Zechariah says. And why is this that they cast down the horns of the nations? We're kind of left hanging here. They cast down the horns of the nations so that another horn might stand above all others. There's only one horn that deserves to stand, the horn of Jesus Christ and all of his righteous ones. Zechariah's prophecy complements several other places in Scripture where God raises up a horn of salvation for his people. It's anticipated first in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The adversaries of the Lord, these enemies, they shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. He will exalt the the kingdom of his anointed one, in other words. The Psalms then carry Hannah's words a bit further. Psalm 75 depicts the, the horns of wicked nations... They're, they're like these stubborn ox that want to shake off the Lord's yoke. Like, I don't like this. Get it off of me. I don't like your lordship. And then Yahweh steps in, lops off their horns, exalts the horn of his anointed king, and then game over, God's people get the kingdom from sea to sea. It says in Psalm 75:10, the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And it's all in connection with God's anointed king. So the whole Old Testament is crying for this day to come and then enters Jesus Christ in the birth narrative of Luke's gospel 
chapter 1, verse 69 to 78. This is just after the birth of John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit says this through another Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's referring to John the Baptist here, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This, my friends, is Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you that God has, in fact, exalted the horn of His anointed one. Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and he rose again from the grave and now sits at God's right hand and the scriptures say he is exalted there above all rule and authority and power and dominion and he has been given a name that is better than any other name whether in this age or in the ages to come. And from this exalted place, Jesus offers pardon for your sins. And for those who trust Him, He offers assurance that we might serve God without fear. Because <laughs> our sins are gone and His wrath is satisfied without fear. These craftsmen were only preparing the way for Jesus' everlasting kingdom, which has been inaugurated with his reign in heaven. The vision of these craftsmen are assurance that God's people will stand victorious with their king in his new temple city, and nobody can stop him. Nobody can stand in his way. He will terrify them. He will cut them off. He will send them scurrying home with their tails between their legs. That's a message for every generation, not just the remnant in Zechariah's day. So what might be a few takeaways for all of us now two and a half millennia separated from the prophet Zechariah? Well, keeping with the theme of four, I have just four Takeaways. They're just not coming from the north, south, east, and west. There are others, but here are four. The first takeaway is this 
Repent because God judges covenant breakers and offers salvation in Christ. Repent because God judges covenant breakers and He offers salvation in Christ. God is no different now than He was then. He still judges covenant breakers. And all the temporary judgments we we see peppered throughout the Old Testament, including the exile, they all point forward to a much greater judgment that is coming on the world when Jesus one day brings His kingdom in full. Even Zechariah brings it up in the last chapter of his prophecy, chapter 14, that on that day heaven will open and Jesus will come with great vengeance to strike down the nations. And Zechariah says that when he does, people's flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. The message of Scripture is clear. God judges covenant breakers. And we must acknowledge that we are covenant breakers too. Israel is not unique in breaking covenant with God. We've all broken covenant with God in some way or another. We've all attempted to shake off the yoke of Christ's lordship and raise up our horn over His. It doesn't matter if it looks like power and sinful sex, and cash, or if it looks more quietly like pretending we're good people overall and we don't need God's grace. In some way or another, we've all broken covenant with God because we're all born in Adam, born in sin, and needy of His grace. But this is also why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. According to the way God set up the world, we needed a covenant keeper who who, who, who could stand as our representative before God. We needed a new Adam who wouldn't break covenant with God, but keep covenant with God. We needed a true Israelite who wouldn't break covenant with God, but keep all His commands. God sent His only Son into the world to keep covenant with Him at every point we failed, at every point we continue to fail. And based on Jesus' obedience, and Jesus' obedience alone, He became the only qualified man to inherit the kingdom, the only qualified Israelite to inherit the promises given to the patriarchs. But never did He intend to inherit His kingdom alone. And that's good news for us. When he came, he never intended to inherit his kingdom alone. In obedience to his Father's loving purposes, Jesus was going to bring all kinds of covenant breakers to inherit the kingdom with him. And the way he does this is by dying as their representative and their substitute on the cross. He was the only covenant keeper, but he died the death of a covenant breaker, not because he broke covenant with God, but because we broke covenant with God. And it was there at the cross that God judged multitudes of covenant breakers like us once and for all time. Anyone who trusts in Jesus and follows Him never has to fear God's judgment for their covenant breaking again because God's judgment was all poured out on Jesus instead. So rather than arrogantly sitting at ease in our sins with the rest of the nations, 
rather than living it up in our sins, see that God judges covenant breakers. Repent from all your covenant breaking. And repentance is possible because Jesus died in your place. And then keep trusting in Christ who is your only covenant-keeping hope for salvation. This is why genuine Christians cannot lose their salvation based on what they do. Because Jesus did everything we need to keep us in the covenant. Second takeaway, align your hopes with Jesus and His everlasting kingdom. Align your hopes with Jesus and His everlasting kingdom. Our passage implies that only God's kingdom in Christ will finally stand. The horned nations in our passage aren't living for God's kingdom. They're living for themselves. And God promises to cut off their horns to bring them down. The message for you and me is that we cannot live for our own kingdoms or God will cut us down too. The kingdoms of this world will not last. Only Christ's kingdom will last. If we align our hopes, for example, with the the state of the American nation or if we align our hopes with our own political parties or our favorite organizations, or our favorite entertainment venues, or our company and the money that it makes, or united military efforts worldwide against whatever jihadists. If our hope is in those things, we will be thoroughly disappointed, not only in this life, but in the life to come. All worldly kingdoms will totter and defeat one another and all worldly regimes will one day fall to the kingdom of Christ. Even now their demise has been solidified because God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven. And there Jesus reigns, 1 Corinthians tells us, until he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. That's what he's doing right now putting enemies under his feet. The last one to be put there is death. Hope in a kingdom that's going to last forever. Hope in a king who can never lose, whose power is sure, whose kingdom will prevail, whose judgments are just. Even Christians need to hear this message. Because in our flesh, we often suppose that God gives us grace to keep doing what we would have done anyway without him. We sometimes lie to ourselves with a false gospel that says, give me grace for this or that, so I don't really have to change anything. I can keep judging others in self-righteousness. I can keep ignoring true reconciliation with my brother or sister. I can keep building bigger barns with my money and ignore the poor. I can keep bossing around my wife and family so they only ever do what I want to do. I can keep pretending that I'm okay and that I don't have any sins to confess to others. I can keep saving face in front of others. I can just do whatever I want. Hey, God forgives.
If we presume on the Lord's grace like that, then we don't really understand the Lord's grace. As Paul David Tripp once put it, God didn't give us grace to make our kingdoms work. He gave us grace to invite us into a much, much better kingdom. Jesus' kingdom. Give yourself to His work. It may not look like you're doing much in the world's eyes or you're spending time in prayer and reading the Word and educating your children and working this way and giving away your money. It may not look like you're doing much, but God is using it to build His kingdom. And His kingdom will not fail. So give your life over to His kingdom. Set your hopes there. Another takeaway. Remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to you. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Not to you, not to us. The wicked world will continue oppressing and persecuting God's people. But if we belong to Jesus, we can gain strength from the truth of this vision that God will eventually cut down our enemies. This vision is written to encourage God's covenant people. Remember again the state of God's people in verse 21. These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. Sitting there in shame, humiliation, helplessness. But pay closer attention to how this vision began. And I lifted up my eyes and saw. In the midst of their helplessness, when no one could raise his head, God is asking his people to lift up their eyes with the prophet Zechariah and see what God is doing in his word. See the world around them as God sees the world. And this vision says... No wicked nation can stand against God, ultimately. We must not give way to the, to the voice, the voices that say things like, things will always be the way that they are. It's a lie. God is calling us to lift up our eyes with the prophet to get a countercultural view of the world, and the view of the world is where we'll act, and in, in this view that's in Scripture, this view of the world is where we'll actually find courage to keep going in the face of opposition. Now, some of you may say, wait, 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 this promise was given to Israel ages ago, not to us. In fact, I'm even a Gentile. I'm one of the nations. He's going to cut down. How can I be so sure that this promise is for me? And to that I would say this promise was never made to Israel in general. It was made to the remnant in Israel and ultimately to Jesus Christ, the singular true seed of Abraham. 
And if you belong to Christ, you are a child of Abraham. You get grafted into God's people. That's how these promises become yours. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. He's talking to the church. So we too gain strength from the truth of this vision that God will eventually cut down our enemies. Their evil cannot win out. Their evil may take our lives in the world, but in the end, God will judge them. God never ignores the state of His covenant people. He has total knowledge of our suffering, total knowledge of those causing the suffering, and He will deal with it by destroying them in His own timing. What that means for you and me is that we are freed to love our enemies, not take matters into our own hands. We are freed to pray for those who persecute us, not get even with our persecutors. We are free to do good to all and show patience with our oppressors, not retaliate with sinful anger. We are free to sacrifice our lives in bringing the gospel into the lives of our enemies and not take their lives with violence. You can see that you have a lot to say in a day with ISIS plastered all over the news and things like this. This is opportunity for you to speak into each other's life. Here's Christianity. This is what it's saying. Here's what they're doing. This is how they're different. Trust in Christ. Paul picks this up in Romans 12. Beloved, he says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, love your enemies. Whether big enemies or small enemies, love your enemies because God is a better judge than you are. Don't try to take His place as the judge. That's to hope in your own kingdom again. So try to take matters into your hands. Exalt your horn above His. I can judge better than you. I can take things... Take care of things better than you. My horn, yours goes down. That's where all of our sinful anger is rooted. A desire to be king instead of trusting in the true king. God brings vengeance rightly and with pure motives and with perfect ends for His glory. We can trust Him to deal with all of our enemies, whether in the cross of Christ or in the lake of fire. God will judge them. That means we are freed to show mercy to all, not wrath. Our fourth and final takeaway, if Zechariah's vision is true, and it is, then our mission to spread the gospel is urgent. It is urgent. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta swallow this. God intends to destroy His enemies. 
And everybody who is outside of Christ is his enemy. And right now, God is showing compassion on his enemies by delaying his final judgment for a time. He gives his enemies an opportunity to escape. And the only way they will escape punishment is if they hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's wrath is coming, and the days of sinners are fleeting. Therefore, let us be all the more fervent in bringing the hope of Christ into the lives of others. As you do it, our culture of tolerance will tell you that speaking of things like God destroying his enemies is bigotry. Our culture will tell you that it is narrow-minded to assert that God is angry with sinners. Our culture will tell you that warning people of God's judgment is manipulative. But these accusations only stand if the threat of God's judgment isn't real. But we know from Scripture that it is real, and therefore it would be unloving for us not to warn them about judgment. Moreover, if we are to remain faithful to God and faithful to His Word, we must warn people of the judgment to come and plead with them to believe on Christ. And we do this not as if We don't know what it means to be part of the wicked nations. We have common ground with everybody because we were all born in Adam when we speak to them. When we speak to them, we speak as those who, without deserving it, were rescued out of the wicked nations to belong to Christ and His forever kingdom. And that shapes our demeanor and fills us with compassion to go to others with this message of God's judgment and what He has done in Christ. Why don't we pray together? Father in heaven, You are a gracious and merciful God. I thank You for showing us mercy when we did not deserve it. Thank You for sparing us and transferring us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Please move us to live for Him, to set all of our hope in Him, to bank on Him. Transform us so that our motives are are pure and, and right and true to your Word. And give us great hope that you will bring victory despite the sin and darkness we see in this world. You will bring victory. In Jesus' name, amen.